Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Today on the mic, we are rejoined by Grant Fisher, field staffer for Serviceside, and Jamie Holler. Jamie Holler is a uh, dog tracking handler. Uh, both the fellows are from South Carolina. And what we're going to dive into today is kind of uh, what hunters should be looking for and what they go through uh, in your post post shot. So welcome, fellas, to the podcast. Appreciate you having me. Sounds good. Good to be back again. Absolutely. So, uh, Jamie, kind of to break the ice, uh, we'll just do some background information and kick things off. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started hunting, um, and then how you kind of got into uh, dog tracking, what made you want to be a uh, a handler? Yeah, man, so basically like every Southern boy whose parents hunt, uh, when I was five, six years old, I was getting woken up at one o'clock in the morning with my dad with a pack of does in the back of the truck, standing around a skinning pole, and just kind of got brought up around it. And I guess it was just a natural course of events to start hunting. Uh, I remember carrying my little longbow with him whenever we would go and sit during bow season six seven years old of course i wasn't shooting but i felt like i was a great white deer hunter um he just kept me involved the whole time that my dad never really uh put his own hunts aside to, or he did put his own hunts aside just to be able to take me i'm sure he compromised a lot of good opportunities uh for a seven-year-old fidgety kid to be sitting on the ground beside him but he kept me kept me in the game and uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, I started hunting, uh, killed my first deer at nine with a rifle. And uh, soon thereafter, really dove into the whole bow hunt thing. And I've, um, I've been bow hunting pretty much primarily for the last, I would say, eight or nine years. I'll pick a rifle up a handful of times. But just a natural progression of going from a uh, kid following his dad in the woods to, to just really shooting a lot of deer and then understanding what, uh, what deer hunt can really be about on the on a deeper level uh, to using it as like a, a, a way to get away nowadays um, with the hustle and bustle of life. And then the tracking dog thing came in. Um, I never had a dog as a kid growing up. And I, I want to say it was 2001. I don't, I'm not sure exactly on the date on that, but I think it was around 2001 or might've been 99. I can't remember. Um, but my dad brought home a bloodhound puppy for us for Christmas. And, and of course we wanted him to have a job. So we started tracking with him and using him for friends and family and it uh it kind of grew from there that's kind of where everything started um and it's been a, a learning curve ever since day one gotcha gotcha so uh when you first got started into uh like training your bloodhound uh like what were some of the things and trials and tribulations that you went through so like looking back on it now having more experience uh what would you have changed differently in the whole training process? Well, the one thing that I hope to be an overarching theme for anybody who's looking into getting into tracking with a dog is number one, you'll never be smarter than the dog. <laughs> um, you can just go ahead and forget that out of the gate. That's the number one thing that I've learned over 22 years. But of course, like everybody, I mean, you want the dog to be a pet. You want the dog to, to work and, uh, Everybody thinks you just lay a track and the dog will follow a blood trail for 100 yards. You have a tracking dog. And, and we thought the same thing. We Otis, um, we've actually worked with some guys from the state. Otis was the first bloodhound. Um, and we've worked with some guys of the state who, who taught us a little bit, explained things to us, would come over and watch us do mock trails. And 
and you know, you, you try to be scent free. You try to lay this blood trail for this dog and let it sit for six hours. And then you put your dog on it. And, and then when he gets to the end and he pulls on the hide, you think you got to track the dog. And it's way more in depth than that. And that's, that's how we started training. Um, my dad and I, we found a lot of deer with Otis and, um, we also uh, left a lot of deer in the woods because of our own, uh, I guess, poor choices, poor judgment, just lack of experience and lack of knowledge around using the dog. Um, but we, we tracked on leash with a six-foot leash when we didn't realize you could run a 30-foot leash and do a lot better. So it, um, I guess to answer your question, um, it, it just kind of evolved from like having a pet, wanting them to have a job, and then using him to kind of uh, help recover some friends and family deer, and then it, it grew from there. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So when you talk about laying a track, um, I have a little history with coonhounds, and uh-huh. so when you're laying a track for like a a, a deer recovery dog, are, how are you doing? How are you reenacting the blood? And then are you even doing that, or are you just taking like a deer hide and running that, or are you taking like a tarsal gland? Like how how what does that look like? So I'm, I'm on a different school of thought um, than most folks. Uh, I, I've actually, I've been in the tracking community pretty heavily professionally, I, would, I guess you would say, for the last three or four years with the dog I have now. Um, and, and I'm a, a complete opposite when it comes to training a dog. Um, a lot of guys use these tracking shoes, and, and I'll go into a little greater detail later, but there's a couple different scents a dog can run, and they don't necessarily need blood or guts or bone or any tissue to, to, to continue running a deer. But a lot of these guys are, are training dogs strictly on um, following a specific scent. And, it's, and a, a track is never cookie cutter. It's never cut and dried. And my train of thought is this. I, I mean, I have a dog with a pretty good nose. He's cold nose. He's going to follow what he wants to follow. But for one, I don't care what kind of scent control you have, how much Tyvek suit you have on, rubber boots, um, face shield, I don't care. You're never going to lay a track without the dog being able to smell you. It's impossible. So we started out doing that with, with just regular blood, liver. We would freeze some blood. And honestly, I got to where I would never freeze blood. I would just, whenever I would thaw a backstrap out or something to cook, the blood that was still in the package, I would just put it in the fridge until I wanted to lay a track. And I would use that blood because it, it really doesn't take a whole lot. Like a, a thimble full of blood can lay a 300-yard track for a good dog. But um, so I, I, I used to do that, and I, I got away from it. The dog I have now, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of mock tracks I laid for him. I quickly realized that it, it was a piece of cake for him, for one. Number two, I couldn't avoid my scent contaminating the track. I could let other people lay the track. And he may get excited about where they went. You know, it, it's, it's so difficult to differentiate between is the dog following the blood that I want him to follow or the scent that I want him to follow, or is he just following me? You know, um, you can crisscross the track. You can lay it with a four-wheeler. You can let it sit overnight. But it's it, to me, it's it's more important to train some other topics, and I'll hit on those in a little bit. Um, but a lot of people still have success with that. I, I, I'm a different train of thought because I spend a lot of time with my dog, but a lot of guys who are trying to get dogs ready quickly um, the quickest way from point A to point B with a tracking dog is to, of course, lay mock tracks, teach them to follow scent-specific uh, tracks, and go from there. Um, but for me, it, it just, with the dog I have now, and I think the other dogs in the past, it would have been a little bit better outcome had I not done it. 
Right. Yeah. So it, it's really tricky and kind of just to piggyback on what, what you're saying. Uh, if you have a really smart dog, it can be actually really uh, troublesome for the handler when trying to train. Cause pretty much just like what you said, the dog's going to be able to figure out uh, how to get from point A to point B based on multiple variables. And those multiple variables might be the exhaust of an ATV. It might be the handler scent. It might be the other person laying the scent. It, it could be a whole bunch of different factors. And if you don't recognize that as a handler, you might be going down the wrong road, correct? Exactly, yeah. And a lot of these people, I get questions all the time, where did you send your dog for training? And I, I shut that down real quick. I say, look, I said, you're not going to have success on a grand scale if you're going to have somebody else train your dog. It just is not going to happen because a lot of what goes into a track or the, the training aspect is you learning your dog's behavior. Right. And you're not going to do that when somebody else trains it. Um, and so that that's one of the biggest things. And the, the other thing is the point A to point B. Yeah, it, it could be following anything to the end. And, um, and, and the thing about it is you dog positive reinforcement of dog. And I'm by no means a professional dog trainer. Let me just completely put that out there. <laughs> I've, trained about four dogs i'm not i really have no professional background in dog training but i have established a couple pretty good dogs and positive reinforcement needs to occur quickly a dog seems to have a short-term memory when it comes to reinforcement so you put a dog on a, on a fake track that goes 200 yards and he's on leash and you get there and you start praising him when he finds what he's looking for now did this dog um follow your scent there and he thinks you're praising him because he followed you or are you actually praising him for the right reason you know exactly um, and that's that's the thing so which brings me to my next topic there is no substitute whatsoever for the real thing um and i, I think as quickly as you can get a dog on real tracks the better off you're gonna be gotcha so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about like dog types here a little bit and then I want to transition so you started out with a bloodhound and the dog that you currently have now is that an English or is that a walker he's an English walker mix he's 50 50 he comes from pretty high-end coonhound stock his dad's a, a really uh, high-end dog out of Columbia South Carolina and his mom as a matter of fact it's a cool story on this dog I'll, I'll just break off a second so a buddy of mine posted a picture on Instagram of this new uh, female hound dog. And I was like, man, she's pretty. Where did you get her? And I, we just struck up a conversation. And I uh, just happened to be on the way to Charleston for a wedding. It was April. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. he said, I got, him from, got her from Columbia, and I think there's one more left. And so he, he passed me the number to the lady who had the dog, and I called her. And she gave me a little background. I said, well, I'm swinging through around – four o'clock you mind if i just take a peek at the dog she's like come on by well you know how that ends up every time <laughs> you show up and see a seven week old puppy you're gonna probably end up with it right and so uh, i got there and i watched the dog work i mean he they let him out of the pen and as soon as he was out of the pen he was in brush piles i mean just nose down diving working and i had a little piece of um, sausage in my pocket and i just sat down on the ground and just let the dog walk walk around me you know and, and he come and stuck his nose straight in my pocket and I said, he's using his nose pretty good. And they're like, yeah, his mom is 11 years old. She was a red tick rescue from Alabama. They got her just to kind of retire her up here. Never thought she was coming heat. She got in 
got in the pen with that uh, that Walker dog, and they got along well, so they just put them together. And then, of course, you know what happens next. She comes in heat, has two puppies, and that's where Spud came from. He um, he was an uh-oh, and they gave me him and a bag of food on the way back home from that wedding, and that was that's where he came from. So stock-wise, um, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot of um, – experience outside of hounds i've had bloodhounds beagles and walker english that's pretty much what i've had um all of which can be notoriously hard-headed um, <laughs> and um early on in training I, I used a lot of like reprimand a lot of um like just corrective behavior um and now i train completely different it's all positive reinforcement and ignoring what you don't want so <clears throat> one of the things i want to ask you uh and again, we're going down rabbit holes here, but I think they're good. And if anybody's considering getting into dog tracking, this might be something that they want to consider. So with you primarily being in the hound world and focusing like your dogs primarily on hounds, what are some of the traits that you think that people need to know right off the bat about hounds versus like some of the terriers that are being used, uh, the, the the griffins like those other dogs that are being used for for dog tracking i mean just kind of what i touched on notoriously hard-headed so the thing about it is you can i see so many dogs pop up um well i got this new tracking dog she's found three out of three this year and uh, you, i mean you look at the deer laying on the ground with the dog and it's a, a 30 off six hole behind the front of the shoulder with blood everywhere <laughs> and uh and they think they have a tracking dog and and the thing about it is it takes so much repetition. Like this year we'll have run over 115 tracks. And uh, right now we're if we find this, I think we're going to go on one here in a little bit. If, we're gonna, if we find this one, it'll be number 70 on recovery for the year. So a really good dog in the, in the state of South Carolina tracking under the conditions we do primarily on leash, um, a 50% recovery rate is huge. And a lot of guys can't wrap their brain around that. They think that 50% is uh, it's just below average you know they don't they don't understand how much goes into it how much repetition and i would say about hound dogs is it takes repetition like you got to run a dog three or four nights a week to reiterate that behavior they like i said their memory is not that long i'm grateful for a hound dog right now that he he doesn't forget like i put him on the first track this year it was like a three and a half miler across water bayed twice shot on the banks of the edisto river and it was like he never missed a beat. It was the most unbelievable thing. But most dogs aren't like that. So you got to stay on top of them. And I think the biggest thing about hounds is they're hard-headed. You get frustrated. You want to reprimand them. You want to shock their collar. You want to get upset with them. They want to run live stuff. Most of them are hot-nosed dogs. And you got to put that aside. Like, you got to be – it's almost like having a two-year-old all the time. It's You just have to put all that away and say, look – this is a this is a marathon, not a race. You know, or not a sprint. Um, and to me, that's the biggest thing. A lot of people get frustrated way too easy. Yeah, for sure. And uh, again, to piggyback off what you're saying, some of the terminology you're using. So you use hot nose and cold nose. And for the audience that doesn't know who, what that is, a hot nose dog is a dog that's primarily going to track fresh tracks or the most recent track. And a cold nose dog is a dog that's going to be able to run tracks that are anywhere from a couple hours old to potentially even uh, a day or, or longer old. So uh, 
that's kind of the, the terminology there that Jamie's using. But uh, one of the things I also wanted to bring up to you and see what you thought about this. One, hound dogs don't get enough credit for how intelligent they are. And then two, you, you also have to realize that uh, hound dogs are typically raised in, or at least bred in a, a different environment than, let's say, kind of like your fancier uh, gun dogs and working dogs, where they're, they're bred to like run all day long. And like, they're like the true form of a working dog. So being able to acknowledge and recognize, all right, if, if I have, if I'm going to use a coon hound for dog tracking before I maybe go out and start a training session, I might need to run that dog for an hour just to tire him out a little bit so that he or she can focus. Did you have to go through right. any of that kind of stuff when, when you were bringing your hounds up? Uh, yeah. And I, that's something I had to learn real quick. Um, and, uh, when I started to track now, Spud will go, he might go 300 yards, the complete opposite direction from where the deer came from. Like he, he may get on a track where the deer was shot, obviously smell blood and here lately he gets the first blood and he takes a poop every time. And I, I tell people, I'm sorry, poop in your corn pile, but it's because he gets excited when he smells the first sign. Mm -hmm. And he, he'll smell it, and he'll turn around and go the way the deer came from. And the hunter will sit there and look at me like, well, he's going the wrong way. I said, well, he's going to paint a picture regardless. He's smarter than both of us. You didn't find the deer. I'm not going to try to find the deer because I know what the dog can do. And, yeah, he, he may go 300 yards out of the way, but all he's doing is painting a picture. Um, one of the first dogs that I had, of course, you want them, you think of, people think of a tracking dog as like a, a foolproof method to follow blood. And you put them on a leash and they're supposed to go blood spot to blood spot for 300 yards and then find your dead deer. And that's the picture most people have in their head. And so I had the same picture when I started out. I was like, why are you not following this blood? I pull the dog, I jerk him by the leash, get on the blood, get on the blood. Like, like trying to push him down this hole when all he's doing is trying to paint a picture in his head to figure it out i mean he can't he's not looking at blood he's smelling blood and that pool of scent from where the deer shot could be 40 yards square you know it could be it could be way outside of that spot that you're looking at you know where it's at but the dog still has to paint that picture and so i would get frustrated and try to force the dog to do what i wanted it to do when in reality just he's doing what he needs to do um and so to, to get back it's like um i think your question was something along the lines of what, what exactly was it again? You, you said something about wanting to, how do you train a dog who needs to run a long time beforehand? Yeah, kind of, kind, kind of that. And then just like, again, with what you said, being able to understand your dog that are uh, like reading your dog. Okay. So like if I have a, a fairly high, strong dog, which a lot of these hounds are bred that way, like you might need to exercise them multiple times a week before you do a training session or understanding yep. it, like so for example my coon hound was the exact same way he'd take a dump before he'd go out uh every time before i drop him in the woods at night yep. he would take a dump and it was just because he yep. was so fired up as soon as we'd hit that dirt road yep. he'd just he'd get so jacked up yep. that he's going hunting and couldn't control himself once he did that it, he was all business and then being able to read yep. those things and i think that's where a lot of differences occur and i was just kind of wanted you to talk about the differences between like some of your traditional sporting hounds where they're right. bred differently versus the hound dog world. Cause I think it is night yeah. and day, the difference. 
like people think hound dogs are slow and they're, not, they're just they don't need that that added uh, that little um, release for lack of better words um, but like you take your German short haired pointer you go behind a bird dog and you, you're in you got thousands of acres and you got a dog that typically runs 40 to 50 miles on a, on a hunt and you, you might get a handler I, I got a buddy who's got a German short hair and he's like well, our hunt for the first for the first hour and a half is going to be crap. He said that dog's going to have to run seven or eight miles, nine miles, ten miles even, before he'll even start slowing down on a hunt. He said he'll bust through coveys left and right. And the hound's the same way. When he gets out of the truck, he, he may not, like, Spud's a little different animal because we do run a ton. But, like, they, they're excited. They want to go. You do. Sometimes we'll, a lot of guys will let dogs out, and they're two miles from where they, they do their shot, and they'll let it run down the middle of the road in front of the four-wheeler before they get there. Exactly. Um, so I think it is. I think it is important for a lot of dogs, and you got a lot of dogs who are who are fat and lazy, but they find deer. You know, it's they're just not they're different. But Spud, Spud's a forty mile dog. Um, during the off season, we we're in the woods three or four times a week, and my and my training's different. My training is hide and go seek. Um, I practice good recall. I practice hide and go seek, and we're talking like not a couple hundred yards. We're talking a mile and a half, two miles. Um, difference hide go seek he finds me um we play that game all the time during the during the fall or during the, the summer late summer uh, early spring and then through the summer but 40 miles is nothing for spud that day he's last time we went to the woods and had a long day i walked nine and a half miles he did 41 miles mm-hmm. um that's on gps collar so he's a long-legged dog he likes to run but um when it comes to a track, yeah, I don't notice a huge difference in when I first drop the tailgate and say it's our sixth track of the night. Um, but he does around in the middle there. He does get dialed in pretty good, and it um, he doesn't overrun very much. And the deer has a really difficult time getting away from him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So I want to kind of transition here, and I want to talk about uh, being in the hunter's shoes and some of the things and mistakes that I think hunters make. So let's, let's start it off by this. Let's just start with the basics. All right. So I just shot a deer. What are some things that I should be looking for, uh, that you would want to know as the tracker on how the deer reacted, uh, what the arrow looks like, how to interpret what the arrow looks like, uh, how to interpret, uh, potentially what kind of shot you had based on the deer and how it ran off that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is something that I I feel this year I'll, I will have taken over a thousand calls, um, most of which are guys just asking for advice, and and I, I'm more than happy to do so. But also by doing that, I learn a, a, a ton about um, what a hunter sees and the outcome. Because a lot of these guys, I'll take a call. Yeah, I, I mean I can't make the track tonight because I I take every track I can. If there's blood, hair, bone, gut or a confident hunter, I go track if I can go. I've driven, I've, I've crossed the Georgia line the other day, and I was like, man, this is getting out of hand, you know. <laughs> um, it's just, it's crazy how far I'm willing to go. But um, but most guys that, that call me and they, they say I got this, this scenario and, and I'm not able to go, and then they text me three weeks later and say the deer showed back up, I hit it here. So I do get to put a lot of these pictures together from what hunters say. Even though I don't go on the track, I still get a lot of outcomes. So, a lot of guys um, simply don't know. A lot of these guys are new. They're shooting at deer um, with rifles at 150 yards. They don't know 
what to look for when a deer reacts, whether it's hunch up, is there a, a broken leg, is the tail down, tail up, is it flicking his tail, does he, how fast does he move off, um, does he flop on the ground, is, it, is there any sign of, uh, um, of like, does he, does he mule kick, I mean, so many different things, a lot of it's not very indicative of any specific shot, except for, I love when the guy calls me and said, I pull the trigger, the deer hunches in the middle, and slowly, um, doesn't seem like he runs off very fast, but he gets out of there pretty quick, but he's not like what I call snap, crackle, and pop. Um, I love when a guy says he moves off, he stops, and his tail's flicking really hard. Um, the whole mule kick thing, that is so nonspecific because a lot of guys either cut the deer low or um, throw dirt on the deer's belly. So it's um, a lot of different a lot of different reactions, but putting that together with what sign they're finding is another, uh, it, it's not like just one specific, oh, the deer mule kick, he's dead. It's like, what you, what sign did the deer react with? What sign are you finding? And how far have you tracked? And um, kind of touching base on the sign, I don't care what color the blood is. Um, I tracked a little small deer that was shot the other day. The guy shot him at 350 yards. He caught it a doe. And we tracked for 975 yards, bathed the deer, and shot him. And the whole time, it's dark red blood. It looks like liver. It looks like gut. Deer's bedded a couple times, then jumped. I'm like, this deer's gut shot, you know? I get there, and the bullet enters right below the jaw on the going inside, blows the whole side of the face off of the deer, and it looks like the deer's gut shot. Um, so that one situation just completely negates what kind, what kind of blood type you're finding, unless you see an arrow going in deer. Um, so blood doesn't mean a hill of beans to me. What means the most to me is what kind of hair are you finding? Or is there any bone? Or is there any food matter? Those three things are the most important to me. Um, you can do, you can clean a couple of deer yourself and kind of determine what kind of hair is where. You know, a lot of guys aren't even cleaning their own deer anymore. They don't know the anatomy. They don't know hair color. They just put a tag on it, drop it off in the processor, pick up packaged meat, you know? Um, so I think that's a, a big thing too. If you you're a diehard deer hunter, I think you should clean a few. Um, but you want specifics, like yeah. Let's let let's go down. Let's break this down here a little bit because I think you already covered a lot of information. We're just breezing over it. So, all right. So let's let's rewind back and let's talk about the hunched over and what that because you said that's something that you can pull some good information out of. So yeah. Yep. A deer that when you pull the trigger and you, and, and it's not, it's not like what you see as a big picture. It's like your first instinct whenever you pull the trigger or release the arrow. It's like, what did my brain tell me right there? That's usually your best, that, that one little split second, right? When you pull the trigger, that is going to be your best information. So if you're shooting at a deer, the, the five seconds after you pull the trigger, you should replay that in your mind over and over and over and over again while you're listening for a crash. Um, cause that information is crucial. A lot of guys pull the trigger. Well, I hit him. He looked like his chest hit the ground. He started pushing himself off. I mean, that's pretty indicative of a low front, front end hit. Um, but the, the whole hunch up kind of thing, a deer that's gut shot, liver shot back of the lungs typically will take a bullet and not really mule kick or, or, or hightail it, but they'll, they'll just look like they do like an arched back. As soon as they're shot, tuck their tail. And they may run, but they seem stiff. They just look, they look like they're not very functional. There's nothing flopping. Legs are working great. Heads up, but they just, they look hunched. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times those deer are hit middle of the body. 
And if you do get lucky enough to see those deer stop, which they typically go 80 to 100 yards, and you watch their tail, you can see their tail flicking or they'll be licking their lips. If you see that, back out and give them six hours. That deer's gut shot, liver shot, pretty much 95% of the time. Um, era rifle doesn't matter. Um, I've shot over 75 deer with a bow. I'd say I've made up made a bunch of shots that were a little bit far back, and I've seen that happen so many times with a bow. Um, I've, I've done it with a rifle countless times as well. It just it just happens. Um, the, the 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 mule kick kind of thing. I mean, you can hit one dead through the middle of the lungs, get a mule kick. You can hit them low across the wrist, in front of the neck. That's it's a good sign. 80% of the time, and it's a bad sign 20% of the time. A lot of times those deer are hit super low. Um, and then, of course, look for any flopping limbs. Well, let me, uh, let, me let me pause you there, Jamie. Let yeah. me pause you there. So yeah. I want to talk about the mule kick uh, a little bit. <clears throat> Do you think there's any validity to this uh, at all? Because I've been asked a couple times about the mule kick that people, hunters, have thought that they made good shots. They saw the mule kick, blah, 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 with the technology and just, I guess, the popularity of big ass broadheads now, do you think that right. some of that could potentially just be the impact of the shot? So like, for example, you shoot a, uh, you shoot a deer, regardless of where you hit it with a rage or a sever or any of these huge, like two inch plus, uh, cutting diameter expandable broadheads, just that freaking whack on the side of the deer's body alerts like shocks them and their just general reaction is just a mule kick yeah i, I think a lot of it is, is that um and it's, it's a little different with a bow i mean most guys and, it, and i don't understand this um a lot of guys who are bow hunters i call them and they're like well, the deer was 25 yards plenty of light i'm like where did your arrow hit Many of these guys can't tell me where they hit. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing, too. They, they don't even know where their air is hitting. Like, when you shoot at a target, you should be able to, as soon as the air hits the target, close your eyes and describe within two inches of where your air is at. You know, it, I just, I don't understand that. I don't know if guys are shutting their eyes or what. But <laughs> uh, with a broadhead, I mean, it, it, you wouldn't believe. And I understand a crossbow in low light, you shoot an arrow through a deer. I get it. But a compound longbow recurve, you should know. So the broadhead thing, I've, this year I've shot 43 deer with a pistol, and I, I've only missed one. Um, and I, I the last deer I shot was a perfect example. I hit the deer a little bit low and back in the ribs, um, had to rush it a little bit, and you should have seen the mule kick on this deer. Um, I mean, he come completely off the ground, and I hit him low and back almost his last rib and ended up having to shoot him one more time. But um, with a broadhead, I mean, yeah, that, that's like – like a bucking horse. I mean, their their mechanism to get people off of their back is to buck and do that kind of thing. A deer that you spook or hit hard or something, that's that's their kind of fight or flight. You'll get get out of there. So I think it. I don't think it's very indicative of any specific hit unless you can definitively say where you're arrogant. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and and that's kind of what I was leading to because I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions out there from a hunter standpoint when you're watching when when you're trying to see what happens, because I think you're 100% right. I think a lot of people don't have any clue where they hit the animal. Uh, right. And when they see that mule kick, they're like, oh, I hit it in the heart. They only mule kick when, when they get hit in the heart, or it's a perfect double lung shot in the golden triangle. And, and that's 
in my opinion, that's just not the case. I think a lot of it not at all. is just exactly like what you said. If you look at kind of like the evolutionary process of, of whitetails, they get just whacked hard on the side because of these big broadheads. They've been evolved to fight off predators every single day of their lives. So you're looking at bobcats, you're looking at mountain lions in some regions, you're looking at bears. That natural reaction is to mule kick and try to get the predator off them. So I think yep. just that that shock and that alertness, that's a natural response to that. Yeah, yeah and I've even had video, people send me videos of deer that mule kick, and, and I, I go and I track these deer, and there's been like probably a dozen instances where I've, I've trusted guys' judgment, own rifle shot deer, 100 yards, own video. Obviously, at the crack of the rifle, deer mule kick, I get down there, the dog stands around like there's no sign here. And I'll, I'll, um, and I'll let him just uh, play around and, and, and hunt for 45 minutes to an hour. He'll never hit on anything. And uh, I'll get back and look, and, and I'll find a bullet hole in the ground, and I'll find the tracks on the deer. And I would say a dozen times the bullet is not even close to where the deer was at. And I go back and watch the footage knowing where the bullet hit, and they're like three foot low. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this, these bullets are not even close. And, and I watched the video to begin with. The reason I took the track is because the deer appeared hit. And they're not even close to being hit. I mean, they're it, just a crack of the rifle, throw dirt on their belly, whatever. Or even, I think they can even sense the bullet going underneath their brisket at two inches low and come unglued. So I don't even think you necessarily have to hit them to get a mule kick. Yeah, I mean, the other with thing... A, with a rifle. Yeah, I 100% agree. The other thing that I think people don't realize, too, is the the actual noise of their projectile. Um, especially when it comes to a bow, but like... I've worked on military bases. I mean, like you can literally hear bullets whizzing in the air. So like yep. there, there's no reason, I mean, for how agile whitetails are, I mean, they can move much faster than we can. So, and their yep. hearing is much greater and much better than ours are. If I can hear like a bullet whizzing in the air, they most certainly can and are going to do something. Right. Yep. Yep. So, so I, I'll... Go ahead. I'll touch base on another one real quick. This is one that I see a lot. Well, I shot the deer. He hit like a stack of potatoes, laid there for five minutes, got up, ran off. Our recovery rate on those deer is about 1%. Um, most of those deer hit high across the back strap. We, I don't like the term. I think it's corny, but people call it back whack, whatever. I don't like those cliches. But anyway, if you ever clean a deer, you look across the withers, the, across the top of the back, top of the shoulders. On a nice 100-pound doe, 180-pound buck deer, when you cut the back straps out between the shoulder blades, you can literally put your hand in top of their shoulder blade and have a, a space of about five and a half inches where there is literally nothing but a transverse process off the top of the spine. Back strap, sinew, meat, tough as boot leather. Arrows do not penetrate it well. And a lot of these guys shooting deer with bows, they, they say, oh, I hit it a little bit high, but only got four inches of penetration. Those deer never come to the house. Um, I've gotten lucky on one. The guy actually, the broadhead, for some reason, turned, went in the shoulder blade, kind of angled down. He got about two and a half, at most, air uh, penetration with the broadhead into the top of the right lung. And we jumped the deer 26 hours later, and he was just had enough blood in his chest cavity to, I guess, like, his collapse along. We ran him maybe a half mile. And when I got to him, his tongue was hanging out. He was bleeding. He was just breathing so hard. Spud ran him very short distance and he just couldn't go anymore mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's those back shots are, are tough to find. Those deer typically live. I've had, I could probably 30 or 40 of them show back up over the last, uh, the last four years. Okay. So one of the, one of the other things you mentioned, I said, I wanted to rewind here too. You talked about, um, the three things that you want to know about. And one was, or basically the three signs that hunters should be looking for. And, and one is interpreting hair. Two is, uh, bone, uh, fragments. And then what was the other one? Um, gut, like food matter. Gotcha. Food matter, gut. All right. So obviously, uh, the, the gut is going to, I mean, that's relatively self-explanatory. We don't really have to touch on that, but can well, you... let me, let me do something real quick. I do want to bring one topic up. Guys don't feel the blood. They say, I got dark red blood. They never touch it. I get down there and I'm like, is the deer gut shot? No, he's not gut shot. There's no food matter. Well, I get down there and I put my finger in the blood and there's small crushed up pieces of corn or acorn or some grass, like little small grass fragments in it. And they, it looks like blood, but you got to touch it sometimes. you got to feel it. And I, I, I make guys reach down and touch it. I like feel that, feel that, that grainy stuff in that blood. And, uh, it doesn't smell like gut, but it's gut shot. Um, so don't just go by what you see. Just feel it. Oh, there's some gritty stuff in there. It could be bone fragments. It could be corn. Look at it. Is it yellow? Is it acorn like a, like a, uh, water oak? So that's one thing I do want to bring up. Don't just look at it and assume it's just bright red blood or dark red blood, like put your finger, you know? Yeah. And that's applicable for, for liver shot as well too. Correct. You'll get yeah. some of that grainy, um, like almost like sandpaper feel in the yep. blood of liver shot deer too. That's usually like yeah, a, a dead giveaway. Yep. And it'll look once it dries, if it's been shot for three or four hours. And I don't know, I, I haven't really correlated this that much, but it seems to kind of dry with like a, like, you know, when like you paint your wall, you got that textured paint. Mm-hmm. It'll have like a little grainy texture to it. It's almost like that. It, it, it dries with a weird kind of grit to it. Um, really not palpable, but it, you can, you can see it. Um, and I haven't really made that correlation. It's kind of an assumption. I, I would, I'd say it's a theory for right now, but, um, but the more I, I do track known liver shot deer, then I'll, I can probably make a better judgment of that. I don't get to clean a lot of these deer, so I don't, a lot of them I see hit uh, last rib or so, and, and I'm, I'm assuming it's liver, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I mean, I that theory there, I've seen that in my own encounters uh, through hunting over the years. But cool. um, I think one of the big things I that is not really well known is how to interpret hair, because I think you're spot on. I think a lot of hunters aren't processing their own deer anymore, so they don't understand the anatomy of whitetails uh, or whatever species that they're hunting, and they they lack that uh, almost field craft, if you will, of understanding the biology of animals. So l- let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, let's Let's start on the hair. What do you what can hunters interpret from the hair that they find? Yeah. First off, long white hair. It looks like you busted a pillow. Um, that deer should come to the house 99% of the time. That's a gut shot deer. You don't get a lot of hair unless you split the gut up. It's so tight to the skin that the lower part of the gut, hind quarters, whatever. You see a ton of white hair that's long, longer than two inches. 
um, call a dog. Chances of you recovering, it's going to be pretty slim. The deer could go a mile and a half, two miles. Um, it could go 300 yards. You never know, but that deer's got to be found. So a lot of a lot of people out there think white hair, gut shot, never going to be recovered. With a dog, that's a 99% recovery. Um, so that one, that one's straightforward. Pile of white hair, call a dog. Um, the gray hair can be kind of one of those misleading things. You can have it off the front of the neck. You can have it behind the front shoulder. Uh, prime example, I had a, took an old cap lock muzzleloader. My girlfriend and I went and sat on the ground the other evening. We had an hour to kill, and I shot a big doe at 30 yards. And I got kind of, I got kind of worried because um, just bright red blood, and I found a patch of hair. It was gray, uh, coarse, had a little wavy texture to it. I knew it was low on the body, and I thought I hit the deer too low. Come to find out, the air, I mean, the bullet had just exited right behind the shoulder and knocked that little patch of hair off. So the coarse texture of hair usually comes from the brisket behind the leg. It's usually gray with a little black and brown tips to it. Um, the hair that I want to talk about is one I find a lot. It's, it's white hair. People say, well, I got white hair. I've got a lot of white hair. And the question I ask them a lot of times, is there any meat attached to it? You see like a patch of hair with a skin fragment, uh, a piece of meat attached to it. And a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, there's two or three of those. Nine times out of ten, that's a flesh wound in the leg unless you have bone. Those deer don't bleed a lot. If they start pouring blood and you haven't found bone, get a dog on it because the dog's probably going to bay it. Um, because a leg shot deer with that white hair, like little probably half inch long hair comes from the inside part of the leg usually an exit wound from a bullet on a leg and there's bony involvement the deer can be recovered like with with bud that's a 95 percent chance um but if you don't find bone don't find a lot of blood chances are it's a flesh wound deer is going to live uh the pile of brown hair looks like you busted a pillow that's usually across the top of the back if you shoot a pretty decent bullet a lot of times you can get that kind of hair from like a, a mid-body, mid-to-upper-body shot. But well, usually those deer don't go over 50 yards. Um, and you say poor blood. Uh, that pretty much covers the hair. If you find there's a there's a type of hair that comes from like around the the buttocks, the groin of like an old an old doe that's long. It's usually three and a half inches or so, and it's it's got a slow wave to it it's not really coarse like a sharp I, i'm it's really hard to describe here i'm not a woman so it's kind of <laughs> difficult but like, if you got this long white hair that's got kind of a slow curvature to it it's kind of wavy but it's long and wispy um i find that a lot on deer that are hitting the hind quarters um usually that hair kind of blows out from in between the, the hind legs um, i found deer with bud this year it was a, probably one of our toughest recoveries uh, all there was, was the only thing we found at the shot site was that hair the guy swore up and down and hit him in the front shoulder he killed a ton of big deer and uh it took us an hour and a half to locate blood on the deer he went across a huge swamp and we happened to just spud worked it out until he found blood and uh, we ended up running the deer about a mile and three quarters and come to find out he was shot through the butt through the middle of the groin through the testicles out the other hind quarter and the deer would have died 100 percent of the time but um, there was no sign other than that long white hair at, the, at where he was shot. So hair means a lot to me. Brown hair can be hit or miss depending on what the deer, what he did at the shot. But um, hair helps me paint a huge picture. And, of course, if you got bone that's, like, long, sharp edges, kind of thick, uh, maybe has that uh, cortical look to it, meaning, like, the hollow, um, 
little like kind of like pumice stone on the inside. They've the, got that. That's usually leg bone. That deer can be recovered too. Yeah. So what what Jamie's saying there is like if you see bone, if you've never done it, but you you cut a a cross section into a leg or a, like a femur or anything like that where there's bone marrow in the inside. If you look at the cross section, you'll actually see the bone. It'll be porous. You'll see little holes in it. And that's what Jamie's referring to, correct? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the cortical bone um, that basically contains the marrow of like long bones in, in deer. Um, I've been finding, though it's only a few times, I guess because most of these deer don't go very far, people recover, but I found some rib bones in the past that have been bigger pieces. Um, I've been caught on a couple of tracks that a blind man could have found, but uh, but I think a lot of guys just wanted to meet Spud, so I would go track them. <laughs> but they, uh, they had little, that, that same kind of look to it, but it was a flatter bone, and it was rib. They, I mean, just uh, completely double lung the deer, maybe go 80 yards and die. Um, and then I, it's been twice this year that I've had deer show back up on camera from guys. It's the whole back whack thing, deer lays on the ground for five minutes, gets up and runs off. Um, but I found really thin, flat bone, smooth on both sides. And looking back at the pictures, it's very obvious that the bone came from the top of the shoulder blade above the spine. You know, like mm-hmm. where the, the shoulder blade kind of rides above the spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that the deer has actually survived. So uh, last question here before we kind of transition. Uh, well, I was going to say one thing. You uh, go into much on like different types of you find it hit site, like say I know that shot you're talking about high on the spine. A lot of times you'll find meat on that, or I guess a leg right. shot you can find meat a good bit. Yeah, Do you, um, uh, interpret that any kind of way. It the, the leg meat sometimes will have you know like if you've ever cleaned one that calf muscle will have uh, like a lot of sinew. It'll be stringy, silver skin. Um, you can get that from the top of the shoulder blade, like top of the back, but a lot of times that leg shot will leave that silver skin. You know, it'll be stringy, yeah. um, and then sometimes you just get bright, like meat. It looks like you could throw it on a grill and cook it. I mean, I've seen chunks of meat come off the deer. So um, the meat's not very specific unless there's bone or a certain type of hair with it. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so with the new fad, and we'll kind of transition over into bow hunting and kind of leave the rifle hunting out of it. With the new fad into heavy arrows, <clears throat> I feel like you have a lot of uh, hunters taking that, uh, shoulder shot and potentially whether you recover the animal, you don't recover the animal. Um, have you been seeing more of that in, in your experiences where, uh, hunters are, are shooting deer, basically squaring the shoulder like you would with a gun. And what does some of that, uh, what are some of the signs of that? Like, like you smoked them right in the shoulder and then what should you do? Yeah. The, the shoulder shot deer, I mean, that's, that's the conundrum. A lot of guys, they, they shoot heavier. I mean, I've been, I've seen a, a big trend, trend towards like uh, good cuddle contact, uh, single bevel, two blade heads with like 18 to 20% front of center on a 600 grain shaft out of a 70 pound compound shooting it. 210 feet a second, whatever. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. I think it's great. I think if you can get a quiet bow that shoots a heavy arrow and you keep your shots in a reasonable 30-yard range or in, I think it's, it's been a 
beneficial. However, I shoot a, I hunt with a longbow. I shoot a heavy arrow. And last year, I shot a really nice eight point at seven yards with a seven hundred grain arrow, traveling one hundred and seventy feet a second, and I hit him square in the front shoulder with a two blade magnet that was razor sharp, and I got six inches of penetration. And long story short, I jumped in, ran into the river. He swam the river. I went back twenty six hours later, expecting to find him dead on the island he went to. Paddled across, called the dog. We jumped him again. He swam back across the river. We never found him. I had pictures of him in deep. I don't think there's any any medicine that is going to cure a shot on a nice big deer. I don't think there's an era out there that if it's going to be shot by a shoulder blade, I don't think there's an era out there that's going to um, just win it over, that's just going to magically prevent poor penetration in the shoulder. Um, with that being said, top of the shoulder blade, I, I think you can keep that, that set up, but I, I don't think, I think guys are still trying to stay away from the shoulder blade. I guess that's the point I'm, I'm trying to make. Um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't end well for a lot of guys. Now, uh, kind of to just extend this part a little bit more, when you get those kind of shots where you see, all right, I'm, I might've got six inches of penetration. Cause I think a lot of times people, uh, really don't, I guess they overestimate how long their arrows are. Yep. So they may see like the deer run off with the arrow in it and they're like, well, I probably definitely got into the lung, the one into one lung. What would be your recommendation for that scenario? The first question I like to ask is what, how, how quickly did the arrow break? So, you know, you probably shot one or two that you shoot them and it seems like as soon as they take their first step, the arrow shears off at the body and that's it. You ever done that? Mm-hmm. So that's the shoulder blade break. That's a really good, unless you like punch right in that corner pocket right behind the shoulder blade, his knee breaks the arrow. It's usually that, that sheer force between the, the shoulder blade and the rib cage. Um, a lot of times you can kind of determine whether or not you've got enough penetration by, by how much air is missing. A lot of guys, when that deer runs off of the air and they find blood six inches up the shaft, on these stiffer carbon shafts, it's not going to break four inches away from the hide. You know, it's going to break right at the hide because that's the fulcrum point for the air. Um, so these guys saying, well, I got three inches of penetration, but I got blood six inches up there. That blood's just coming out of the hole, coming up the air. It's not that you got that much penetration. Um, so, uh, my recommendation for guys who shoot deer in the shoulder, um, and think they got one lung, I, I, I don't know that there's a right answer. I think it's kind of a gut feel to me. If I shot a deer in the shoulder and I was 20 minutes from home for my dog and I had plenty of land, I would come back and I would drop the leech on him as fast as I could and let him run the deer and just push him. Um, especially if we didn't have a whole lot of big rivers for him to get across, I would push the deer fast and hard, um, keep him bleeding. Um, I know Chuck Adams, his old stories, he used to shoot deer in the femoral and the jugular and shoot them in the heart. His first thing, he'd take off after, you know, keep them, keep them moving. Because uh, once they stop, um, they're able to, to stop bleeding. Their chest cavity doesn't fill. A lot of times these one lung deer make it. I know Fred Eichler's got a bunch of, um, a bunch of, uh, I guess specific instances where he's had one lung deer show back up. They mm-hmm. were known one lung deer. So I don't think there's a right answer. Yeah, you can let them lay 12 hours, 14 hours and try to recover, but a lot of those deer make it. 
So basically what I'm getting at and kind of why I brought this whole point up is I think there's a very, very fine line. And I'm, I'm just curious as to a, your opinion. Because, yeah. for example, like you just said, you get those one lung deer and they can most certainly make it on one lung. You look at humans, they have a lung removed, they'll make it. Humans are much, much weaker than white-tailed deer. Right. And in, in when I come across those scenarios, that's usually my immediate reaction. And, and what I suggest is stay on that deer. Don't let that deer stop. Because like, so for example, here in Pennsylvania, we could get a, a tracking dog. But if we get that tracking dog and let's say that that dog bays it up and, and has it held there, we legally cannot shoot it. And we, we, huh. we can't finish it. Um, the tracking dog can only be used in basically the recovery of the, the animal live to the animal being dead and no process in between. Okay. Uh, so like my recommendation would be get on that track immediately and try to keep pushing that deer until you can get a second shot into it. The, yeah. Yeah. My, my follow-up question is based on your experiences, how quickly do you think deer can clot up where you are going to run out of blood for a scenario like that? So let's say uh, a deer beds down and it's within a hundred yards of potentially where you shot it. And I'm using myself as an example. I knew that I had a one long hit. Um, when I hit the deer, I knew that I hit it in the shoulder. I heard the crack like a, like a baseball bat on a tree and, yep. uh, I could see when the deer ran off, like basically it just whirled around, started running off and the arrow cracked in half and the deer basically went on uh, a dead sprint. Knew it was a one lung hit and I had to get on that deer to try to push it to get into a second shot. Ran into a couple beds and jumped him up, but eventually he ended up clotting up where I wasn't able to recover that deer. Right. Can yeah, you... Uh, the thing I don't know if a human can push them fast enough. If they're not bleeding that well, it's tough for a human to stay on the track fast enough to do what you need to do. That's where a dog comes into play. I gotcha. think it's, it's only beneficial with a dog. Um, I mean, if the deer's pouring blood, a deer, people have underestimated the amount of blood or overestimate the amount of blood. They see the blood trail and say, this deer's pouring blood. I've seen some deer go six miles, no joke, on blood that was so bad on the ground that it's getting on my boots and my pants. Just trying to avoid it, but couldn't avoid it. Um, they have a ton of blood. They can go a long way bleeding like a stuck pig. So what you're doing is, is not necessarily trying to push blood out of the body. You're trying to fill their chest cavity if you're pushing them that fast. And a lot of times humans can't do it because they're not bleeding a ton on the ground. You can't say, you, you might get stuck on a part of the track. Did we go left? Did we go right? You might spend three minutes. Well, that deer's already made it 300 yards. You know? Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's like one of those scenarios, like, uh, you can try it, but the, the likelihood of success is, is very low. Yeah. But say you got down on the deer you shot. So you got down, you found your arrow and from where you found your arrow, you just looked and you could see blood for 15 yards and he's just pumping blood. Well, chances are one, he's probably hard shot. He's not going to go far. I mean, you probably did what you're supposed to do. Um, number two, if he is single lung, um, and you want to stay on it, and you jump him out of a couple beds, at that point you make a game-time decision. Look, he, he left his second bed. He's not bleeding near as much. 
I got a cut over a hedge at 300 yards. Let's give it the option of laying down and dying this time, you know, um, because it's looking like the blood's petering out. I don't have enough to stay with. Let's back out, give him eight hours, put a dog on it, and hopefully find him dead. So I, I, I always encourage guys to track their own deer. I don't have a problem with going to track them. It's when people start grid searching it, it messes the dog up. But, like, it's got to be game time decision. You know, like, you did the right thing. You got down, you pushed him, you just didn't have the blood to stick with it. And potentially the deer survived. You know, um, you gave it the effort that it needed. But a lot of times the situation changes in the middle. Like, like we, we get on deer sometimes, we were able to run off leash in half of the state. And we'll get off leash and, and we'll get near a big road. I call the dog off, put him on leash, and we'll finish the track on leash. You know, it's, it's just, uh, it's got to be a, a game time decision. I, I think uh, I think that only comes with experience. It's not something that can be taught on a podcast, you know? Right, right, for sure. I 100% agree with you there. Uh, and then kind of just to finish that story uh, with my situation, yeah, I did it almost exactly like you said. I got to a point where it's like, all right, I need to back out and get on it the next day, give it some time because the blood was getting weaker and see yep. if I could recover the deer the next day. Well, come in the next yep. day, I'm following blood and we come up to a bed and there that deer is looking around. Yep. We jumped him up okay. out of that bed and that was it. And that ended up, so that deer, when we, when we came up on the bed, we got within probably 40 yards. It was a Sunday and I wasn't able to take my bow with to finish that deer off. Because right. there's there's no Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, right? To a certain degree, we got we that was the laws have since changed a little bit, but we only have three Sundays to hunt. But I digress. Yep. Well, I was gonna say, man, Joe, when you're going back to scenarios about when to back out and draw a dog, I'm say just go into um, no doubt scenarios when a human's not gonna find a deer, and you definitely need to put a dog on it whenever you get down to shoot. And I say, you want me to talk about scenarios where I wouldn't even try to track? I know scenarios like where the hunter definitely needs to call a dog and back out to not try himself. Like I guess you're saying with gut shot kind of leg shots, shots where you definitely are going to need a dog. Yeah, I, I mean, like prime example, the deer we we tracked for you. I mean, yeah, you knew from the get go. You watched your arrow. You you're one of those one of those old school guys who knew exactly where your arrow hit. You even had video of it, and and you you di- didn't find a whole lot of blood. You know, it it uh at that point it's like. You know the deer's mortally wounded. He's gonna die. You got a thick cut over a hedge, and and that's another thing guys don't think about. I, when I get to a track, the first thing I ask is, "Where is your pond? Where is your thickest cutover?" Because that's where they're gonna go. And your deer went straight into that cutover. You knew he was gut shot. Probably you had a good potential to get the offside long, offside shoulder, but you just didn't know because the deer was quartered. You didn't know exactly how hard he was quartered. One of those like iffy kind of. It could be one way. It could be the other. Um, and you did the right thing. You weren't finding a whole lot of signs. You back out. He's going to go lay down in that cutover, or so we thought. You know, um, but there's situations like that. There's situations where um, where you do track a deer 100 yards and you jump him out of a bed. Like at that point, man, just back out. And if you got a, a trained tracking dog or a good handler somewhere, get their opinion and uh, and let them come do their thing. I mean, it's so much easier with a dog. And I mean, I can go into the detail about uh, different situations where dogs were crucial. Like they, they're the only way they would have found deer, which happens a ton. But I always encourage guys to track the deer. I mean, you did what you could. You realized it was a, a lost cause. You backed out. I think. 
blood sign and they start grid searching. That's whenever it becomes an issue. If you follow a blood, you follow it for 400 yards and you never jump a deer and you still want to try dogs, I'd be down with that. But a lot of these guys get 200 yards in, jump the deer, don't find any blood out of the, out of the bed, and then they just start looking for a deer. Um, and that's the wrong thing to do. So <clears throat> let's talk about some of the wrong things because I think that's extremely important and where hunters are, are screwing up and really not putting their best foot forward in the recovery of, of the animal that they are going after. So you mentioned grid searching. Uh, talk about that a little bit and then any other things that hunters should consider and have in the back of their mind. All right, I shouldn't be doing this because I'm going to screw up the potential chances of if I call in a dog of the recovery of that animal. Yeah, I'm going to touch on one before I forget it because I've made this mistake. Um, shoot a deer, arrow passes through, you go down there, you mark the blood, you take that bloody arrow, you put it in your quiver, and you start tracking. I did that on a deer that I, I made a really good shot on this deer. I was close to the river, and Spud was young, and it was back in the first year I ever shot with a homemade longbow. I was picked, you know, I watched the air blow through the deer. I went in there, picked it up, stuck it in the quiver. It had blood, a little bit of gut matter, but I knew the shot was good. And uh, I started tracking. Well, I carried that nasty, bloody air all the way to where I lost blood. And then we looked around right there a little bit, scattered some blood sent out, you know. And I was I didn't realize I was taking that air and touching everything with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was bumping and stuff, and it had that... And it just made it made it really difficult for the dog. The deer ended up going in the broad river and swimming the river. And I lost him anyway, but it made it difficult. So try to leave your arrow where you shot the deer. Um, don't carry it. Contaminate a lot of stuff. Number two is tracking too early. Um, you watch an arrow go through a deer. You climb down. You look at your arrow. It's gut matter. People start tracking. Unless you know you hit the deer square behind the shoulder, exit was through the gut, but you double lunged it, liver, gut, got everything. Let the deer give it some time. Um, no, there's no magic number. I found gut shot deer 18 hours later, still alive. And I'm talking straight through the food bag, still standing on their feet. Um, so there's no hard and fast rule. A lot of guys lose gut shot deer because they, I would say the six hour mark is when I would start tracking um, at the earliest. If you can give them till the next morning, given temperatures or wherever you're at for coyotes and stuff. Um, Give him, give him at least 10 hours, 12 hours. But tracking too early is one. Um, and then the whole grid searching thing, like just looking for a deer. People get desperate, and uh, and they just start looking for a body. When we hunt in some of the thickest places, Grant and I do, uh, where you can't see 20 yards in a lot of places, and you got to literally step on a deer to recover it. It's not very high percentage of the grid search and body search. Um, it just doesn't work very well. So that's another thing. Um, not marking the blood trail is another thing. Guys get turned around, and a lot of guys, you, don't, you wouldn't believe how many people don't even know which way the deer ran. They can't mm-hmm. take you to last blood. So make sure you mark it. Make sure you mark first blood. Uh, that's big. Um, any other ideas that I can touch on? I think that's, those are some of the big ones I see. Yes. On your last one, I was going to say now, for people who have apps like Onyx or Hunt Stand or stuff like that, when you start a track, go ahead and start a tracker on yourself. Then walk the trail, and you'll have your whole trail on your phone. So... Even if you don't have toilet paper or flagging tape, you can go right back to it or you should be able to if you drop a pin on it. Right. Yep. So yep. one last thing here, Jamie. Uh, I know yep. you got to run because you got to go to a track. But uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is rain. 
whether it's, you know, rain's coming in the forecast or it's potentially raining. I know I've had, I think, three different scenarios where guys have called me and asked me my opinions just this season of, hey, rain's coming. I'm going to go out and track a deer that was a questionable or marginal shot. And the advice that I gave them was, no, don't go do that. Give them time. And at the very least, uh, you're not going to by giving them time, you're going to have the, you're going to give the deer time to expire. And if right. you don't give them time, you're taking that card completely off the table. So like, let's say you don't call a dog, you can at least go back in after the rain and grid search. But if you are going to call a dog, uh, what is the likelihood of recovery and rain and that kind of stuff? Well, every dog's different. Moisture does nothing but help a dog. As long as the, the trail is not contaminated, you haven't salted over, um, haven't driven down the roads, all this stuff, you're going to be fine waiting. It, it's going to have to literally pour for hours to contaminate the track. Um, I've tracked in a zero blood sign track, gone three miles and jumped with deer twice. And it just was an unsafe situation to try to put a finishing shot on the deer. Both times the deer got up between me and the hunter. and uh, it was a friend of mine, and he wasn't carrying a pistol. I don't allow anybody to carry a gun when I track. It's me or uh, most of the times guys don't, they're not able to stay with me. And the deer got up between us, and I wasn't able to put a finishing shot. Deer ended up jumping in the river, and we lost him in the river. Um, so that was in a pouring rainstorm. Blood sign, it can completely wash away, but it actually, I don't know if this is just my theory. Like I said, I'm not a professional by any means, but I do it a lot. That scent, once it's washed down into the dirt, it doesn't go away. Um, it's just not visible. So it doesn't really, it takes a lot of rain to wash the blood completely into the ground where the scent's not followable. Um, where it gets difficult is when a deer basically gets up out of a bed after the rainstorm and then walks off. It's hard to follow that interdigital gland scent, which I didn't really touch on. But um, the, the, the dog, I'll take a little side note, it's a little rabbit hole, but. Um, you put a dog on blood, gut, hair, whatever, they follow that until it runs out, but they're not done there. They're able to associate that interdigital gland scent, which is the scent that comes from the gland between their hooks, that is actually a different pheromone that's produced whenever a deer is injured. Um, and so they're able to associate that blood, gut, whatever, with that interdigital gland scent, and they no longer need blood or anything to follow. They can follow that hook print. And that's how they differentiate between a, a healthy deer and the deer they're actually trying to follow. They can run through a pack of deer and stay on one hoof print uh, based on that. But So the only problem is that rain sometimes does screw with the interdigital gland scent on top of the ground. But as far as the chance of recovery with a dog, it actually goes up with the rain. Uh, it has to rain a ton to mess it up. Um, sometimes coyotes and rain does force your hand, but if you do have a local tracker you can call, I encourage you to go ahead and get on the horn with them. And uh, a lot of them, if, if they got pretty decent dogs, they don't mind running after a rain. I know I don't. So um, it just depends on, on who you have available. If you can get somebody out, I would say, like you said, give the give the deer some time to expire and take a dog in. And, and even if they're not able to follow the track uh, that the deer actually ran, a lot of dogs like mine, are, we, we bird hunt a lot of deer. We'll, we'll crosswind, we'll hunt the thickets, we'll hunt the creek bottoms. And a lot of times we find deer that we don't actually go point A to point B on. We crosswind over 200 yards and we'll go to it and recover. So it's not all lost if the dog's not going to follow the scent. If the 
dogs got a good handler and well mannered, they can sometimes bird hunt him out. That's what I call it. Anyway. Gotcha. Okay. Um. All right. I I know that I said that was the last question, but I do have one more that I think is important, and this yeah, is probably going to be um scenario based. So when a hunter is looking for a dog handler, they should potentially kind of critique the handler and the dog, correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the, once it, once you call a dog, it's out of your hands, it's out of the, and you just got to kind of trust the handler to, to handle the dog well, but it's up to the dog. And, and that's like my old baseball coach, I played college baseball, and he would always tell us, look, you give me five days a week, or four days a week, if we got three games, the three games are yours. Like, I'm just here to kind of, to kind of man the ship, but outside of that, these are your days, you know. Uh, we train all year long for, for that track, you know. When I get there, people are like, well, do you want me to show you blood? I'm like, no, nah, show the dog whatever you want to show him, but I'm just here to keep him safe from the road, and I'm here to uh, dispatch an animal if need be. And most handlers try to get too involved, and it's, that's the problem. A lot of guys try to tell their dog what to do, and like I said in the very beginning of this podcast, you're never going to be smarter than your dog. Um, and so it, it, a, lot of, a lot of guys try to overhandle their dog, um, and I think that's where they mess up. And, and, and more so from, like, the question that I'm asking is, okay, so before the, before the handler even gets there with the dog and the hunter's looking to pick up uh, a tracking dog, what should they look for in uh, maybe credentials or something, like a, a reputable tracking dog? I guess is what yeah, I'm asking. So, yeah, okay, I got you now. So it's like there's a, a website called United Blood Trackers. It's a list of guys all across the country. There's UBT, UBT2, I think, certification. And don't quote me on this. Actually, Bud is not even certified. Um, he kind of got grandfathered in just because uh, he's pretty well known. Uh, I mean, I've had people call me to go to Ohio, Kentucky, Texas, Oklahoma. Um, and it's just he's established. I share his stories and I'm actually writing a book about Spud. So it's, um, it, it really, word of mouth is huge, but you can go online to United Blood Trackers, find a tracker in your area. Facebook's another huge thing. I know here in South Carolina, we have South Carolina tracking dogs. Um, but UBT1 and two certifications, those are, those usually, those dogs are typically qualified. Um, a lot of times you have guys who are out at, out at, tracking deer for the wrong reason. They, they just want some beer money and they'll show up for 15 minutes. So you kind of got to, um, you do have to, uh, to be careful with who you get to come out. I, I get calls for complaints all the time. I'm like, I don't even know who this person is, you know? Um, so look for that certification. You can ask around, you can call, say there's a guy you're questionable about, call, uh, one of the trackers in that area that's UBT certified, ask them if they know him. Um, Charging-wise, people do charge money typically. Some people work on tips, but um, just, just I, I guess the only way is to really know if they're UBT certified. That's probably the only certification that I know of. Okay. Gotcha. I was going to ask one more uh, thing. Is there anything you would go on, like, hunter tracker etiquette, like, that you wouldn't want the hunter doing while you're seeing or anything? Like, I know some people want the hunter to stay at first blood and have a walkie-talkie. You really didn't mind if you're right on the scene with you watching the dog because the dog's yeah. usually way out in front of you or that kind of topic. Yeah, so for me, it's an experience for me. Uh, guys, 
the guys enjoy tracking with a dog. They don't realize what it goes what goes into it. They I want people to see because I think it's one of the coolest things on the planet. I think it does nothing but promote the sport of, uh, if you call it a sport, or the, the, the ethics of recovering deer with a dog. Um, I really never touched on, like, like statistics-wise, but um, there's probably hundreds of thousands of deer that go lost every year because people just don't call a dog. Um, I can break down statistics, but anyway, I want guys to experience that because it is fun. It's a it's it's a cool it's a cool experience to be able to steal the deal on your own deer using a dog and getting a witness. It. Some handlers um, like for guys to stay back at first blood, mark blood. They go in. For me, I, I'm lucky and fortunate enough to be able to run off leash a lot. So Bud's doing his thing. He bays deer. He holds deer well. He doesn't get in fights with deer typically, so it stays safe. Um, and I like guys to be able to, to, to explain to them what's going on. Look at the GPS. This loop he's made seven times. As a handler, i got to break him out of this loop and get him across this original track and, and just show him that the deer's not in this loop. He thinks the deer's in this loop because he can sense it. But I got as a handler, i got to do this. Or this is what's going down. I like to share that with people. So I like people to follow along. My dad, he's 62. He's about to have a pretty significant back surgery. But... I talked him into going with me two nights ago, and we had a 1.47-mile track, leg shot deer. And I just took my time, let my dad stay right there with me. He got to witness the whole thing. And it's really cool. It's a really fun experience. It's a cool hunt, cool ending. Um, and and I, I like the guys to be there. So a lot of guys have different rules. I don't let anybody carry a gun. I've had some bad experiences with some buddy dogs getting shot. And in the heat of the moment, guys tend to do things that are crazy. I do this all the time, probably seven or eight nights a week or seven or eight times a week. And so I'm able to keep my emotions in check. I know what, what's safe, what's not safe. But a lot of guys have never done this, never shot around a dog. And I do not let them carry a gun because uh, you never know what guys are going to do. So that's my only hard and fast rule. Um, and the other thing, too, if we're at night, keep your light on. Um, and always let me know if you hear me yell, holler back at me so I know where you are. Um, and if, and if it ever becomes a question of where the hunter is or where other people are or how that deer is going to keep on running because I'm not going to shoot. Um, and it's just, it's just a safety issue. And, um, and we never had any problems. These guys understand, um, and they have a lot of fun and we do video a lot of, so this will be a lot of them on YouTube. Nice. Uh, and like I said, I'm going to be writing my book and, uh, and, uh, that'll be a little bit more detail about each individual track, a lot of more, a lot more like, uh, really, really um, uh, detailed uh, notes and things like that, kind of what we found, caliber, um, shot placement, distance, all that good stuff. So it's going to be more based on, like, actual data and information rather than storytelling? Well, no. I, I might have misunderstood me there. It's going to be a lot of that information. It's going to be more detailed, but story is going to be the huge thing. I, I love storytelling. I've been a writer ever since I've write. I write every hunt story I ever go on. There was a period in college where I wasn't able to write because I was busy with ball and stuff. But uh, pretty much since my first year, I've written a journal entry for every deer hunt I've ever been on. I've kept a record of every deer I've killed. Um, and I think I have about five journals filled up. My dad has nine or ten. And uh, he's been offered to publish his stuff already. Some guys have come in and want to publish his journals. And uh, one day that may happen. But it's just really cool. I love to write. And, uh, and a lot of people want to read about Bud, so that'll be what I do in the spring, just put together his four years of stories, and then I'll write a second edition down the road. That's awesome. 
that's awesome. Looking forward to seeing that. All right. So, uh, Grant, you all good? You have any other questions you no, want to? I'm, I'm good. Okay. So, Jamie, if anybody has any questions on um, deer tracking, uh, dog handling, getting into uh, that kind of stuff, how can they potentially get in contact with you um, just to bounce some questions off you, that type of deal? Do you want to put out your, your social media? Yeah, it's my name's just Jamie Holler. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I think um, it's just Jamie underscore Holler. I think for Instagram, but um, yeah, they can find me on there. Shoot me messages. I'm public on Facebook. I have five thousand friends, and I have about twenty five hundred sitting in my inbox. And I don't, <laughs> I don't. I need to go in and weed some people out. And everybody says Buddy can make his own personal page and all this stuff, but really, I, I learned last year I had three hundred messages in my spam folder. I didn't realize were there. I didn't know how to access it. So even if I'm not friends, you shoot me a message. I know how to find the messages now. Um, and so just, just shoot me a message, holler at me. I'll give you my number. I don't, I'm not going to put that out public, but if, uh, if anybody wants my number personally, just shoot me a message on Facebook and I'll we'll have a chat, talk on the phone, whatever. Um, and then I think you, if you want to find my number, you can probably find it on the UBT website. If you go there and take a look at it, uh, it's United Blood Tractors. I'm, I'm listed on there. So, yep. Just, uh, give us a shout i'm happy to answer questions like i said i'm not a professional i've never been a professional dog trainer um and i can i can share more information i didn't really even go into training with him i trained spud with a duck toy that was what we played with so it was uh guys look at me crazy when i explained to them how i went about training him but uh it's usually hide and go seek and, and playing with a duck a stuffed duck so, uh, <laughs> he's a he's pretty simple guy so yeah just holler at me anytime yeah, for sure. I'll have links for your social media on uh, on the show notes, and I really appreciate you doing this. Last question, I promise this is the last one. I want to start doing yep. this with all the guests. So what is one thing about hunting that uh, you know now that you wish you would have known 10 years ago? Oh, uh, man. Um, it's more about the process than it is about killing the deer. Um, I'm a, I'm a pretty good deer hunter. I'm a terrible deer killer. That's what I like to say now. I, I have a real soft heart. Um, I see a lot of wounded deer, and I, I shoot a lot of deer for folks, and I get to experience that side of things. But for me, it's more about the experience. Right now, I'm working on um, – I've been building longbows for about three years now. I've sold 47 longbows. I started building longbows just because I wanted to be involved in every step of the process of killing my own deer. And I don't rifle hunt hardly anymore. I hunt traditional 99.9% of the time. And I just have to have my hands in the process. And I encourage guys who uh, who are getting bored with deer hunting, getting tired of it. They, they find themselves down this rabbit hole of cell cameras and, and, and monster bucks and all this stuff. Take a step back and get back involved in deer hunting the way we were brought up deer hunting, where put a traditional bow in your hand, take an iron-sided rifle, 30-30, and go sit on the ground on a, on a white oak tree and shoot a deer on the ground. Like, get back to the roots of deer hunting because we're going to lose that um, if we're not careful. Great, great uh, explanation of that question. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. All right, no, fellas. Yeah. I appreciate you guys hopping on. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast.